Welcome to Keep the Faith, the bi-weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. I'll get right to it. The topic for this week is how the U.S. Supreme Court is undermining our democracy. My podcast two weeks ago gave the impression that it falls well on the high court bench. But all is not well, dangerously not well. The right to vote and have our vote counted. The ability to appeal unjust convictions. The right to decide personal matters that should be no one else's business, such as sexual orientation, when you can marry, the use of contraceptives, abortions, and so forth, all have been either whittled away by Supreme Court rulings this year, or the door has been opened to whittling them down in the near future. As I've so often said, our Founding Fathers found in our sacred texts the very values they sought for America, especially the Torah's underlying assertion that all people are created equal, that all are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America didn't even come close to achieving these goals when it was founded, but it was moving ever closer to them from then through 2016, despite some occasional backsliding. From 2017 on, though, America once again is moving ever farther away from these goals, with the current Supreme Court leading the charge. The once cherished legal principle when it comes to interpreting the Constitution is stare decisis, a Latin term that basically means that courts should follow the precedents set by previous decisions. All nine justices insist they believe in this principle. Stare decisis, of course, is not immutable, nor should it be. There are Supreme Court decisions that must be overturned. The court, for example, was very supportive of segregation until 1938 when it began to chip away at this wicked practice, ending it completely in 1954 in its landmark Brown v. Board of Education ruling. While some Supreme Court precedents deserve to be overturned, every justice on today's court has said, sometimes in the exact same words, that these instances, quote, are rare and should only be done after careful consideration of all the factors involved, unquote. The problem is that four of the five conservative justices, at least, seem to have a different understanding of what the word rare means. They apparently interpret it as meaning that precedent can be thrown out the window whenever it clashes with their politics or religious beliefs. That's why those rights I mentioned earlier are being eroded now, despite various Supreme Court rulings in the past. I praise the Court for some of its rulings this year in my pre-July 4th podcast, because I want us to have a happy July 4th. And the Court's decisions in three cases gave us reason to cheer. The Court threw out two blatantly racist redistricting map, and in the case known as Moore v. Harper, it rejected for now at least, something called the Independent State Legislature Theory, which would have ended fair and free elections here. 
But the court has been giving us many more reasons to fear than to cheer. That independent state legislature theory began to gain serious traction in 2000 when then-Chief Justice William Rehnquist used it to justify his vote in Bush v. Gore, which in effect threw to George W. Bush an election that Al Gore had won. The Florida Supreme Court had ordered a statewide recount there because Bush had a 537-vote lead over Gore, with over 61,000 ballots still to be counted. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to decision, stopped the recount cold, leaving that 537-vote lead intact, thereby giving Bush the state of Florida and an electoral college win, even though he lost the popular vote nationwide by over a half million votes. Rehnquist argued that the recount took away from the Florida state legislature the authority to establish the way presidential electors are chosen, said the then Chief Justice. The First Amendment's Elections Clause, quote, is an independent grant of power to the state legislatures and the state courts have no role in enforcing it, unquote. His argument didn't make it into the majority decision, but he was the Chief Justice. And he was clearly saying that state legislatures could declare open season on free and fair elections, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Sadly, the Roberts Court merely put the issue on a back burner. It could come up again, and it probably will, and it could be upheld next time because the Roberts Court has an abysmal record where voting rights are concerned. I also mentioned that the court threw out two partisan-drawn and racially discriminating redistricting maps in Alabama and Louisiana. That was a surprise because two earlier decisions by the Roberts Court in 2019 and 2021 had stripped federal courts of the right to hear cases involving partisan gerrymandering. The rulings in Moore and in the Alabama and Louisiana cases would seem to be a reversal of those decisions, although that remains to be seen. Voting, though, is only part of the story. The court last month basically said that innocent people in federal prison get only one shot at a get-out-of-jail-free card. They may be innocent. But if they had appealed once before on different grounds, such as that they had ineffective counsel, that they had no right to a second appeal based on new evidence that could prove their innocence. Innocent or not, they have to stay in jail. The court did something similar last year when it refused to stay the execution of a man in Arizona's death row. Fortunately for that man, because of the new evidence, the state attorney general intervened and he was taken off of death row just five weeks ago. This year's ruling came in a case that's very similar to the Arizona case. This decision, though, is a truly frightening and unheard of ruling for a whole different reason. The court, in effect, gave lower courts the right to completely ignore Supreme Court decisions. The case is known as Andrus v. Texas. 20-year-old Terrence Andrus killed two people in 2008. 
He was charged with capital murder, and he pleaded guilty. The only task for the jury at his trial was to decide his fate. Andres had a history of serious mental health issues that had gone untreated. He'd seen loved ones murdered, and he had suffered physical abuse during his lifetime. These are all mitigating circumstances that juries must consider in death penalty cases, but the jury that sentenced Andrus to death never heard any of this. Andrus appealed the case to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on ineffective counsel grounds, but that court denied his appeal. Three years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that Texas could not execute Andrus because he had received inadequate legal representation at his trial. The court also found that the Texas court had misapplied the law and it ordered the court to revisit the case in light of its decision. Texas court ignored the Supreme Court's ruling and reaffirmed its earlier decision. The case went back to the Supreme Court, which bizarrely allowed the lower court to disregard its earlier decision. Speaking for the minority in her dissent, Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor said, quote, It is particularly vital that this court act when necessary to protect against defiance of its precedents, unquote. The six conservative justices obviously disagreed. If the lower court ignores Supreme Court rulings, apparently that's okay with them. Begs the question, if the lower court can ignore Supreme Court rulings, why do we have a Supreme Court at all? There were so many other decisions this year that are at best questionable. These decisions and so many others that have been handed down, or will be handed down because of starry decisis is now as rare as a well-done steak, undermine our basic rights in this country, minority rights and privacy rights especially. Here's something else of great concern about the present Supreme Court. It makes almost all of its decisions these days on something known as the shadow docket, which is supposed to be reserved for emergency rulings, such as stays of execution. The court, often in the middle of the night, would stay in order of a lower court until the case could make it to what's known as the merits docket, so that it may be fully argued and finally decided. There are no oral arguments presented in shadow docket decisions. There are usually no written explanations issued. And sometimes we don't even know how many justices voted to approve it or why they voted as they did. The court, in its just-ended term, issued 151 decisions, 88 of which were from the shadow docket. That's just over 58%. never used to be that way. In the 16 years from when George W. Bush took office in 2001, Barack Obama left office in 2017, for example, the court issued just eight shadow docket decisions compared to 784 merits docket decisions. From 2017 on, the court has issued 107 shadow docket decisions versus 588 merits docket decisions. Moving on, here's a case that'll be coming up next term that worries me greatly because the court agreed to hear it in the first place because of the way this court has ruled in gun cases and because of how it rules on matters involving women's rights. 
The case is known as United States v. Rahimi, and it deals with whether someone with a history of domestic violence should be allowed to own a gun. There is no reason this case should even be heard. There's ample evidence that we need to keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. A woman is five times more likely to be murdered when her abuser has access to guns. And according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, of the 1,031 women who were killed by an intimate partner in the United States in 2022, 542 of them, 52.2%, were shot to death. This all belongs on the books. But apparently some of the justices at least think that's debatable. I'll have more to say about this and other gun matters next time, God willing, especially about the relationship between domestic violence and mass shootings. Briefly stated, a Johns Hopkins study found that more than two-thirds of mass shootings, meaning shootings where at least four people are killed, were committed by people with a history of domestic violence. The makeup of the court's supermajority doesn't give me confidence that this gun law will be upheld. Aside from the fact that this court has done a great deal to undermine gun control legislation generally, it's also a court that includes Clarence Thomas, who was accused of sexual harassment by Professor Anita Hill, and Brett Kavanaugh, who was accused of sexual assault by Professor Christine Blasey Ford. It also includes Amy Coney Barrett, who's a member of a charismatic and somewhat secretive Christian faith group known as People of Praise, which is among its key teachings that women must be, quote, absolutely obedient and submissive, unquote, to their male partner. Add Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch to the mix, both of whom have repeatedly ruled against gun regulation, and John Roberts, who usually does, and it's not likely that this court will keep domestic abusers away from guns. Rather than America reflecting, quote, the judicial laws of God as they were delivered by Moses, unquote, as the New Haven Colony's legislators put it in 1655, they increasingly reflect the oppressive laws the Torah was meant to eliminate. Of course, the Torah is our Torah but its laws of morality and ethics are for all people, not just for the Jews. And as Jews, because of who, what, and why we are, we need to stand up and be counted when those laws of morality and ethics are being undermined. We have to do more than pay lip service to these issues or attend a rally or send a check. We need to be proactive in the political process if there's any hope of bringing about a change in direction for America back to its core Torah-driven values. We need to stand up when governments make it harder for people to vote or when they deny proper representation to minorities. We need to stand up when governments deny women the same rights as men have. We need to stand up when governments deny anyone the right to decide personal matters of any kind especially those that affect their own mental health and well-being. The late Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik of Blessed Memory once wrote that from the standpoint of the Torah, discrimination of any kind, quote, 
constitutes loathsome barbarity, unquote. Loathsome barbarity, those are strong words. Chase is saying this on a halakhic principle known as Shavod Habriot, human dignity. Quote, this key concept constitutes the basis of human rights. The maxim of man was endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights was not an innovation of the founders of the American Republic. These men were impressed with the doctrine of human rights, which flows naturally from the concept of kavod habriot, concept of the dignity of man, and its biblical proof text, the image of God in which he created man. The concept of kavod habriot is the basis of all civilized jurisprudence, as well as of all the laws of justice in the Torah." Unquote. He also wrote this, quote, The guidelines of respect for all people are endowed with so much significance that the halakha states that any commandment in the Torah can be passively violated in order to preserve the reputation and respectability of another human being. Kavoda Briot also supersedes every rabbinic law, unquote. In a letter he wrote in 1984, late Rabbi Moshe Feinstein of blessed memory cited yet another fundamental principle in Jewish law, the principle of hakarat hatov, expressing gratitude for good that is done to us. Our sages of blessed memory applied this principle to how we're to view everyone in this world, whoever they may be. Rabbi Feinstein, in his letter, applied this principle to voting, noting the freedoms we the people enjoy here. He wrote that voting was, quote, the most fundamental responsibility incumbent on each individual. By this, we can express our appreciation and contribute to the continued security of our community, unquote. There can be no security for any community that denies its people the right to register and to vote. There can be no security for any community that denies all its citizens equal protection under the law. There can be no security for any community that denies that all its citizens are created equal, that all are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's that simple. This wasn't a great country in the beginning. It had its flaws but it overcame many of them because it was built on the Torah's moral and ethical code. Now it's backsliding, dangerously backsliding. If, in the end, the great experiment that is America fails, the whole world will suffer, not just this country. And anyone, anywhere, who ever looked to us and saw hope for achieving freedom and democracy for themselves will have nothing left to hope for. My question to all of you is, what are you going to do about it? One thing we all can and should do about it, regardless of where our political loyalties reside, is to recognize that there is no issue that comes close to this one in election 2024. The dangerous and democracy-defying direction the Supreme Court has taken and will continue to take outweighs the economy, and every other issue combined. 
We need to vote for whomever the Democrats nominate for president in 2024, whether it's Joe Biden or someone else. And we also need to vote Democrat for senator. Among the Senate seats up for grabs next year are those in states in which this podcast has loyal listeners. New Jersey, New York, California, Florida, and Texas. We need to vote for Democrats next year because it's the president who nominates justices to the Supreme Court, and it's the Senate that must confirm those nominations. Both Associate Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas are said to be considering retiring sometime in the next four years. They're in their mid-70s and may want to retire while they're in good health. Only if we have a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate can we end the supermajority's hold on the court and its attack on our democracy. We need to remember that it was a Republican Senate that refused to fill a Supreme Court vacancy for an entire year in the hopes of getting a Republican president in the White House. They wouldn't even give Barack Obama's nominee Merrick Garland a hearing. But Donald Trump was elected, and we got Amy Coney Barrett instead. Then we got Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, and the supermajority that's undermining everything this country is supposed to stand for. We mustn't let that happen. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcast. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Keep wearing those N95 masks in group settings, indoors and outdoors, no matter who tells you otherwise. And above all, stay safe.